You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the third installment of our Handshake miniseries covering Too Old to Die Young and the films of Nicholas Winding Refn, featuring machete dancing, underage romancing, ska music, cartel weddings, severed hands, oedipal pussy eating, a diamond-studded pistol, two truths and a lie, and Billy Baldwin jacking off. Martin. Yes, Please tell me that motherfucker is not a real cop. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how did these two fare for you? Uh, definitely a step back. Uh, yeah, you think so? For me, yeah. I think that I, mean, I like them better than the first three, um, but episode five just hit this really great flow for me, and I was like, oh man, if the rest of the show's like this, like I'm, I'm so in. And I love just the kind of like pulsing narrative of just a little genre movie in an hour. And I mean, you get to, you know, again, Jesus comes back and really, in my opinion, kind of slows things down. Like his, his pacing is just so much more melodic and just like, all right, all right. And so didn't mind, I mean, episode six wasn't as hard for me as um, episode two, which is just like, oh my God. Um, cause I think there's some really funny stuff in episode six. Um, but then we, and I think it's episode seven. We get some cool, um, continuing adventures of, um, of Martin and Vigo doing their kills. Yeah. Volume six and seven is where the paths converge, right? Right. Is that we're finally actually bringing the song together because you have, you know, three, four, five, all revolve around like Vigo and Martin's relationship and then Vigo taking Martin under his wing, teaching him how to hunt these pedophiles, which I do find fascinating that volume seven begins almost with like a flashback to where like you're sitting in the room with Jenna Malone as she's going through like how they actually choose them with her being a victim's advocate and then how, you know, then Vigo goes out and hunts to provide a, what does she call it? A higher form of, of justice. justice. High form of justice, yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is, like, pretty interesting. But, like, it, you're right. It, it does almost come to a screeching halt 
reintroducing Jesus in volume six as much as I like it. Um, but it, I also feel like if you were going to do anything with Jesus, this is the time to do it because the end of volume five finds Martin stabbed in the desert, basically fading out. And it becomes like we kind of noted in the last episode, sort of where you would put like an intermission if this was one long work, you know? And so like, when you come back from the intermission, it's kind of like if anybody has seen RRR recently, that's where they introduce the backstory to one of the second characters. Cause the, the first part is following this one character kind of showing his mythic story while he's battling a character and that building a relationship with the other main character in the movie. And then the second half of it following the intermission is that guy's backstory that he forms a friendship with. So it's like, it finds at least structurally a good place to where it's like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Now we're going to get Jesus and his travels to America with his new bride, Yuritsa kind of out of the way. Cause the other thing that I, I do like about volume six that, you kind of had to do is that up until this point, we didn't really know what his mother's involvement was in the cartel, like how high she ranked. And then you actually get into the mansion that he and Yuritsa inherit from her when they move back to the United States. And it's like, Oh shit. Like he's taking over a mantle somewhat. And like, it's a huge mansion and there's portraits of her and guns and all this stuff. And then he has the whole backstory thing, which we'll cover when we get into a deeper dive in the volume itself. But it's like, you had to do this because it's like, you had to get Jesus back to America because their paths eventually had to cross with Martin and Vigo and Damien, which they do. And that's what it's really setting up here. It's like, it's almost like when you would read like those huge Stephen King novels, like it or the stand. Yeah. And like you would have those section breaks to where a new section just kind of starts like, okay, this is you've hit like this branch of the story in the last couple. And now this is this branch and we'll eventually bring them all together when they get to Las Vegas. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I can see, I can see what he's doing. And, um, I have some, there are some stuff I really like about, six narrative wise and like what it reveals about Jesus's character, um, which I think actually gives a lot of dimension, more dimension to him, because I think one of the problems I had, especially with episode two is I know so little about this guy and it, it's so drone core that I'm just spending time with this beautiful model in Mexico, basically just posing, but I don't know anything about him which is like interesting and mysterious. But for me, I'm like, I need some more to bring me through here. This is so early to do this to me, you know, which is also nice for Augusto Aguilera too, because he actually gets to be an actor instead of a statue yes. in volume six, which kind of surprising. Yeah. Some of the scenes are like, Whoa, actually he's, yeah, he has story. the goods. It's yeah. it's a great reminder that like, you know, I haven't really seen him in a whole lot since then, but like Refn has always had, an eye for talent as we've gone over with, you know, dating all the way back to Mads Mikkelsen, who will be in the film that we're covering at the end uh, after the episodes Valhalla rising playing the one eyed like death machine Viking. Yes. And like, um, but like he, he 
more or less brought us Mads Mikkelsen yeah. originally. And then you also have him working with Gosling super early and kind of molding his image into something totally different than what we'd seen in his career thus far. And in Drive itself, you have Oscar Isaac, Carey Mulligan, Albert Brooks, Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston. And uh, it's just, it's incredible that you pack that much talent. But I mean, we just named, you know, you have Albert Brooks in the movie, which is, that was even kind of a cool almost rediscovery because he has Albert Brooks completely playing against type and doing like a real psychotic gangster thing. Well, you, uh, you also think about, I mean, fucking Tom Hardy and Bronson. I mean, Tom yeah. Hardy was not really anybody yet in terms of the way he is now. I mean, like he's, it's not quite a household name. He's very, he's a, he's an A-lister, you know? No, he's, exactly. You know, then it was just like this really great British actor and for him to give him that chance, he didn't have anything like that before. Yeah, he catches all these people in the, the moment right before they become famous. Yes, like right on the upswing. And his movies almost become springboards for the. Yeah, and he, he knows how to make people look good. He knows how to get good performances. He knows how to like, you know, I think beyond, like, whatever, we'll talk to you more about with, with this episode, but like he can pose people and make them look great, but he can also get some really interesting like deep performances too. Well, yeah, I think you texted me last night or the night before. You were like, episode six, so this is just a bunch of really pretty people standing around and looking great. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Which is pretty true. I mean, for an episode that starts in the desert with a cartel wedding and like ends up in a mansion in L.A., like you could do a lot worse for, with a guy behind the camera, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, if there's one person... It's the quality that we kind of talk about with, like, Tony Scott, you know? Which I know is an odd, like, a strange one-to-one -one because he and Nicholas Winding Refn's styles couldn't be more different in a lot of ways. But Scott knew how to make movie stars look like fucking movie stars. Yeah. And Refn does the same thing, only he does it for new actors that are on their way to movie stardom. Yeah, and I think Refn is much more sexual, you know. Oh, God, Because yeah. Scott is more, can show machismo, I think more. Um, Although Scott's pretty sexual. I mean, Revenge, Top Gun is even known for its homoeroticism. Well, yeah. <laughs> and homoeroticism. True Romance has the phone uh, booth sex scene. It's like he still had his own sexuality, but yeah. it was different than Reffens. Reffens is almost like this leering fetishism that makes you, even as a viewer, uncomfortable because at times it feels like you're taking on Nicholas winding reference eyes completely, you know, and seeing like, especially Augusto Aguilera, frankly, like he likes that guy's body the bulge, and the, <laughs> his speedo bulge, because there's one shot in particular and too old to die young where you're like, damn son, like, you know, you could have just paused the camera and been like, Augusto, you want to, you know, hit a room with me real quick? Because, Reffin loves him, yes. obviously. Yes. Well, you want to get into volume six? Let's do it. All right. The Ten Commandments of Man, given to all man, through the inspiration of I, Prince Buster. One. Thou shalt have no other man but me. Thou shalt not encourage no man to make love to you. 
neither kiss nor caress you, for I'm your man, a very jealous man, and is ready to lay low any other man that may intrude in our love. Three, remember to kiss and caress me, honor and obey me in my every woman fancy, seven days a week and twice on Sundays, cause at no time Will I ever be tired of IT hit? Follow my name so that every other woman. We're back covering volume six of Too Old to Die Young, The High Priestess. Martin, this was not your favorite episode. Uh, would you say that this is next to worst, in your opinion, next to episode two for you? I don't know. Um, Which other one do you hate? Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of the pilot. It just took me a while to get into the show. So I think it might be like That's that. insane. I know. Um, and the more I'm thinking about it, I don't hate this episode. Um, and again, there are elements that I like, but I I do think that the the, the pacing of the, the Jesus and Yuritsa episodes just I mean they're they're very purposeful in their in their pacing, but I just like this late in the game, I'm like I need some plot points here, man. And like, same thing as episode two, there's, there are more plot points in this one there than there are in episode two, far more, far more, but still comparatively speaking, you know, some slow movement here. It's not the bullet that four and five are where At you, all. Oh where my they God. have a solid straight narrative kind of line that they're following that's direct it fits within Refn's kind of filmography and the themes that he loves has the violence has the uh, weird humor and then has a great resolution frankly too it tells a complete story yes I do think that that's where this episode is kind of at a disadvantage anyway because you can almost view it as the beginning of another two episode arc although I guess three, four, and five are more of a complete arc than anything else. But like four to five is its own sort of mini movie. Six and seven kind of do that too, because now it's all about Jesus and Yuritsa come to America. They're taking over Jesus's mother's uh, side of the business. They're reestablishing their uh, territory, let's say. But eventually, and very early in it, they show that, you know, one of the ways they're going to try and take their territory back is they try to kill Damien. They have a hit put out on him in one of the more hilarious gags. And it's like a long joke that they like 20 minutes long in, in true too old to die young fashion. That it's like the longest bit of setup for like a really good punchline, which is they Basically, well, one of these uh, Mexican underlings in Los Angeles is given the hit uh, to uh, take out Damien and then subcontracts it out to like a mechanic for five grand. The mechanic negotiates it up to like six, so, half yeah. up front and then half upon uh, delivery of the dead body. But then the mechanic subcontracts it to another dude. To two guys. But, but two guys basically splits that and then keeps pockets a little bit of the money. And then those guys go and subcontracted to a meth head for basically no money, like a couple hundred bucks and a a bag of crystal. And he of course fucks up the entire job and kills the wrong guy. He kills Damien's right hand man instead. And one of the best 
title drops in the series thus far to where they go after him and then Damien goes into the street and just lights them up. Yeah, it's um I love and that's and that's also the scene where he's just dancing out doing the the reggae music, right? Like out in the, in the just yeah, da- like, I, here's he's the dancing thing is, like a teenager. It's really weird. I wrote a note uh, to myself, like, what's up with Damien's life? Like, what's going on here? Because he has a daughter. Like, that's the thing that's super weird is that it's almost like whatever Nick Reffin wants is what the characters do. Because, like, earlier, I think in, like, episode two or three, he goes and meets Martin in that parking lot and has the cell phone. And it's like, hey, take a, a picture of me. My daughter just got me this cell phone. And he won't, she won't stop fucking texting me the whole time. And it seems like a normal interaction. It's like, oh, shit, this guy's a drug lord and has people killed and whatever. But, like, he also has, like, a normal life, you know? Well, maybe not because we see Damien both machete dance in a parking lot where he's cutting fruit. Yes. Like randomly. He's doing the ninja game. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) exactly. It's like, who's the, the chef that got famous that the Asian one, I think he's Japanese where it was, they would throw things in the air, like fish and stuff where he would catch them and then skin them all in like one motion. (laughs) And he has like the flowing hair and he wears the sunglasses and shit. You, you're like, all right, I guess he kind of looks like a Nick Reffin character sort of. (laughs) But I, I can't remember the guy's name because he's a real chef and like has restaurants and stuff. But like it reminded me of that, of like they're just throwing things at Damien. And it's almost like watching a bunch of kids play stickball in their backyard, only it's with machetes and shit. But then the second time when they come to kill Damien, they're like zoning out to like ska, reggae. And doing like they look like they're dancing on mushrooms while like psychedelic music like plays over them, but they're doing it in a fucking parking lot. It's you're right. Cause it's, it's, um, it's with these moments where Refn were style Trump's, um, any con- logic, any logic. And, and like, okay, this guy is edging in on the Mexican cartel, the most dangerous group, you know, in that area. And you're just going to hang out with two bodyguards who are also on drugs you know, just and the, hanging out, but I don't even know if they're on drugs as much as they're almost just like vibing. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what it seems like. They're just kind of having a good time. But well, yeah, and he he. Um, I know you wanted to talk about performance, but that actor um, is really interesting because when it starts out, he's so subdued and he's so scary, right? Like he's he's really creepy the first time you meet him because he's supposed to represent this hole that Martin has fallen into, right? It's like, hey. I owned Larry and now he's the devil. I owned Larry and now I own you. And the more you get to know him, like the moment where he actually thanks Martin, you know, for like, he's like, thank you for calling and helping me out. It's like they're friends or even a couple episodes earlier where Martin's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I thought the next step was going to be him saying, well, fuck you. You work for me when he does it. And he's like, I get it. It is hard for some people. It's like, it's like talking to your teacher and be like, I can't get the paper done on time. I you think know? that's <laughs> what makes Damien one of the most interesting characters. And the actor's name is Babs Olusamukin. And like, he gets to actually make fascinating choices to where like, yeah, when, uh, Martin goes to him and is basically like, I'm done killing. Like I'm not killing a guy for five grand. Like a couple episodes ago, he does. He has that moment where you can see him like process it and be like, okay, okay, well, what can we do more or less? He, he's like a 
businessman. Yeah. But it's like doing like a negotiation. But that's the thing that makes the dancing even more ridiculous to me because I'm like, it's just like this dude zoning out. It made me think of, remember when you first watched The Wire, like the first five uh, seasons, and then Marlo, when he enters, they they present Marlo as almost like this sort of mysterious... Uh, malevolent, malevolent force that nobody can really get a bead on. They couldn't get like any intel on him for a while. He stayed secret. So did uh, Stringer Bell and Barksdale, uh, Avon yeah. Barksdale. Like that was a big plot point in like season one is like how they didn't actually have photos of these guys and had to have like cameras put to them. Like these dudes are just dancing in the street out in the open to fucking reggae and have like LED lights and shit set up. It's a, it's just the, the version of reality is so that the wire represents is so far removed from Nick Reffin's like bug nuts, cocaine fantasy land that you're like, this is Disney world practically for like scumbags. Yeah. He is totally, again, it's like you can see in his mind say, Oh, won't this look cool? You right. know, and, and also he's a fan of these, he's a fan of dance scenes like that. We, I know there's the scene, you know, the birthday party and I guess the next episode, but also like you think about Bronson, like that awesome, you know, it's a sin, the camera pushing in on all the people in the psych hospital dancing and kind of and zoned out. He loves these, he loves those kind of like weird zoned out dance numbers. Well, and it's even like we talked about how drive becomes borderline musical at times yeah, to where like, it's not even dancing in that, but he creates these montages that are set to music that tell you an entire story, like wordlessly. Yeah. Real hero stuff. Yeah. He loves like infusing like weird musical bits into his movies. And especially they, his dance numbers are something else though. The, um, but that actor though, uh, Babs who plays Damien, like I love him in Dune. Um, and as, uh, Jameis and what a cool character because like he Morgan Freeman, (laughs) he's a very important to that plot because it's a moment where like the moment where, uh, Paul becomes a man, you know, and and finally he kills his first person and passes on to becoming Moadib. And, but that guy's so cool because he like, he's so also, he has that haunting face because you see him in visions earlier because that like. Uh, Denny's trying to do this whole thing where the path isn't set. He's either going, this guy would be his best friend or he's going to end up with, um, with Chani. It's one of those things where it's like, we know he's getting vague images. Like he has an image of Jameis being like, Hey, I'm going to show you the ways of the desert. But when he actually shows up, that's not the path he's chosen. He has to fight Jameis to the death. Um, but I remember watching, I've been watching this show and I was like, who's this guy? And I finally did the IMDb game and I'm like, Oh man, it's one of the coolest parts of the end of Dune. Like he's got such presence. I'd love to see him do more stuff. Oh, 100%. He also brings Refn's fascination with faces to the forefront. Like, and particularly silhouettes because Babs has those very angular cheeks that are very pronounced, but he loves, and like he, I think he loves Teller's face for the same thing. And like Gosling's is very angular where Teller's is kind of muggish and beat up a little bit. And he has the scars. Yeah. And he has yeah. the scars on him, but he loves like posing them again, but he'll do it in like shadows to where there's that great moment where uh, Miles Teller is hunting and he like stops at the end of a hallway and turns and the frame is literally just taken up by his like silhouette 
they do he does a lot of that with Babs too and especially the way that his character Damien like emerges from the shadows as you'll just see his face and his eyes emerge because it's so like unique and idiosyncratic he he's such a purely visual director a lot of the time right down to his casting decisions it's pretty remarkable well i mean and not to like get weird but i mean he's a very dark skinned african american like he a lot of Refn deals with like very pasty white boys sometimes, sure. you know, like, like Gosling. And this is <clears throat> speaking from a color perspective too. Like it's just, he's got a he's very beautiful skin tone that you could tell he's also lingering on like the shape of his face, his piercing eyes. Like you could see him as loving the image. That's why I always find Refn's claim to be colorblind real fascinating. Yeah. Because like he does, he right for the latest, uh, second sight films, 4k release of drive. He writes this long note on the back of it. And he talks about how he wanted drive to feel like kind of like a fairy tale with a hero and a princess and a dragon to be slain and yada, yada, yada. But he realized as he was making it, that he was colorblind. And that's why he amped up certain colors because he could see them that way. You also wonder if his colorblindness plays into his love of shadows and people like kind of emerging from them or existing in them is that that's literally the way that he sees the frame at time is that he can't pinpoint exact cues. So it's like, I'll frame them to like, look almost like old 40s noir characters. Another cool thing I, I love about the look of this entire show is like he's not afraid of like low light scenes. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple, so I'm watching it on my, and I'm watching it on 4K and it's beautiful what they put on Amazon, but I have to like close all my windows, turn all my lights off to even see what's going on because it's so, it's so low light. Well, and that's the thing that makes it so cinematic to me. Yeah. Because it, it forces you to almost watch it in the environment that it demands. Yeah. You know, like you can't just watch this during the day half, like with one eye on it while you're cooking or doing your, it's just not that thing. He wants you locked into its reality or I guess fantasy uh, 100% or you're not going to get it at all. Yeah. Another thing I really like about, I do like, I mean, I think I like this episode more than I let on at the beginning. Um, so I love, again, the history we're getting of Jesus. And my favorite thing is he was just that guy at high school who sold you drugs. Like, that's who he is to this entire... These kids only know him. Like, the kid he meets in the... in the um, They only know him because he was the guy... Like, they literally call him at one point, he was the kid with the good coke. Yeah, and, like, that's all he is. And, like, the fact that there's so much more, you know... I think he left that guy. I left being that guy. And the way that he... He almost reminds me of Michael Corleone where, you know, before he shoots the the sergeant or the captain, he's Michael. When he comes back, he's the godfather. Like he has to go to Italy and then come back. Right. It's a very similar kind of plotting device. And yeah, it's the the transformation abroad because the way he presents his backstory to Yuritsa when he tells that story about his mom and how like, you know, he didn't really know until like his, what was it like 15th birthday yep. or something. And then she revealed it to him. And it was like, that's when you officially become a man around the house. And then he found out that his mom was a cartel boss and he thought it was the coolest thing. And then he started stealing little bits of Coke and selling it at school until he got busted. And then as he put it, he was punished. 
you know, and it's it does one of those long Nick Reffin pauses to where you're like, I wonder what punished from his mom entailed. Probably sexual, honestly. It yeah, seems like the yeah. way that, it, especially where the rest of the episode goes. But like, then his mom basically puts him to work to where she puts an eight ball in his lunch every day. And then they would go home and they'd hang out and plan trade routes and like get high together. So like, he's not quite Corleone because Corleone was pure. That's part of the, that arc of the Godfather of like watching purity completely descend into darkness. It seems like Jesus always was a little darker, at least drawn to the darker side of life. It kind of is why he's the black mirror to uh, Miles Teller and Martin, because Martin, it seems like his, he, had like a dark side to him too, to where he has the, the capacity for violence that Vigo taps into and like gets away from him by the end of uh, volume seven in a really disgusting, gruesome way. But like they are flip sides to, to the same coin. It's like, they both are channeling these things that exist inside of them, or at least trying to keep them at bay to where Jesus just embraces it the entire time. Well, and Jesus, I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about Corleone. I think it's more just the, the plotting itself. Oh yeah. You know, of like, well, because know. he goes to Mexico and he becomes like, he, he transcends, like he becomes a Don. He's no longer a kid at lunch selling eight balls. He's going to run an entire like wing of the cartel himself. Yeah. And the idea of like connecting to your roots, like you're an immigrant, right? Like right. go back to Mexico. He's like, and then the idea of Corleone too, going to, going to Sicily, one well, how he's like favored even higher than the Don's own blood. Yes, you know all of that, and I I think it's interesting though that again that the way that these kids view him and it and it connects to my favorite scene in this episode of my favorite scene one of my favorite scenes in the show is Yuritsa going to the party, and what I what I really like about it is from the first time we see her in episode two. She's an animal. I mean, she's she's she walks like she's a high priestess, right? She walks like a ghost or a, or a snake or a shark, whatever you want to <laughs> attach to her. Right. She's I a- think of a ghost. Like she almost is like one of the, the spirits that came out of like the, the day of the dead, you know, and just brings its own wrath with it. Right. Absolutely. You know, and, and in a lot of times I think she's carrying the energy of, of Magdalena of his mother too. And one way you could interpret it is that she's the reincarnation. Yeah. Like the sense I get is Magdalena died and then, out of the desert came this woman, Yaritza. But I love, I love the scene because, you know, you're talking about these two episodes being where our two worlds intersect finally, right? We have um, the world of Martin and we have the world of, of Jesus and we have their women, right? So you have, which Mark, is a pretty ballsy choice. It's, they're the first to connect is you right. have Laney and it's a it's surprising from a, from a narrative standpoint of like, Oh, of course she would know these kids. Like she's another rich kid who probably goes to one of the better, she goes to one of the better private high schools. And that's where criminals kids go and just rich kids go. And you end up in this, in this, in this bedroom and it's just like, Hey, you got any Coke? And we know Yuritsa and we know the energy she brings of like, if she wants, she could kill both these fucking girls. Like she has the capability and like the blink of an eye and the blink of an eye. And it's a really tense scene. Because it's like they're the both girls are being a little catty and kind of like, oh, like, you know, like you were saying earlier, kind of giving her shit for like, oh, did you marry him because you're pregnant? 
You know, like they're, they're making all these assumptions. Yeah, because Janie has this horrible Asian friend who oh. just does nothing but spit like racism. Because a lot of this episode is about racism and perceptions too, right? Because like all they see is Jesus, the Mexican kid who sells cocaine at, the, like you said, the local like probably predominantly white high school. I mean, when he even goes back, he's not respected by them. He's not respected by the other criminals yep. because he goes to get a gun at a pawn shop from the guy who uh, subcontracted Damien's hit out. And like, he basically just stands there and insults him and Marie the the entire time. Like it's very, very like, you know, patting the kid on the head. Like he's grown up a lot. Hasn't he guys like totally, in infantilizing him. Well, I also took it as you're not real Mexican in yeah. a, like inside of that culture of like, we've been here like on the streets hustling, doing this thing. You, you were always like a kid who existed in privilege in this kind of like white rich world. And then you went off and, and lived on a literal plantation with a Don and lived a different kind of like privileged existence not white in this case, but like privileged existence. And then you came back and now you want to take everything over from the people who have actually been here, like kind of with our noses to the grindstone and everything. There's a classist thing at play. It kind of reminds me of the scene with Mo Green and the Godfather. I have to bring it back to Godfather. Right. Again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Godfather's like talking down, like you don't know how we do business. Like you're, you're, you're Michael, you're the fucking kid. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're the youngest. And then the aftermath is Michael killing everybody. All the people who disrespected him. It's like, Oh, this is who I really am. Like, and I'll, you know, the classic scene of during the baptism, you know, and this feels very similar where you could see Jesus seething inside. Like the energy of, of his performance is like, keep talking, motherfucker. You Man, know, Augusto I'm going to kill Aguilera in that scene where they're in the pawn shop is so good because it's not only like, keep going, I'm going to kill everybody. It's almost that thing of like knowing you're being underestimated. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah you're talking. talking shit. That's cool. I'll, I'm going to remember this. And man, Michael Corleone at least just killed everybody. <laughs> hey, Zeus makes the, like calls the guy's mom a fucking Coke mule, says that she gets condoms full of Coke shoved up her ass, berates him verbally, calls him a wet pack, and then makes him get on all fours and honk like his mother would as a donkey. He literally asks him, did you come here? Did you park your donkey outside? And you're like, Jesus, dude. But again, it's about race and how like he... In his mind, is like, I'm going to embrace this privilege. If this is the way that you view me, cool. That's who I am now. I am higher than the wetback Mexicans. Like, that's what you do. If you, like, didn't do this, you would, like, mow lawns or whatever. Just really horrible, like, classist stuff, but he's embracing it and throwing that energy back at him. It's really, like, kind of brilliant writing that also makes you feel really uncomfortable. Well, it's, I mean, it connects to the, one of the opening scenes of, of Morgan Fairchild walking into their open house because so Jesus and Yorita both passed out. They've, they've been traveling and you find out this is this, you know, white Karen looking woman, you Who know, just walks into their fucking house. She's like, hello, excuse me. You know? And then assumes cause Yorita catches her, assumes she's quote the help. And then when Jesus comes out, you know, it, she talks to him again like, oh, Jesus, you're back. It's super patronizing. Super, and like, like, the little, like just your little boy neighbor. And he, of course, plays it well. He's just like, and that's why he says to Yuritsa, he's like, we got to blend in. He, a little bit. 
because Risha's just being super mysterious and she, she's being her haunting high priestess self. Yeah, because she just kind her. of emerges from the shadows and like like sweatpants and shit. She, like, she kind of looks low rent when she comes yeah. out, but she doesn't say anything the whole time and just kind of stares at her. And yeah, he, he literally is like, it's almost like a dude like tapping a dog on its nose and being like, you can't fucking bite everybody, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she... But that episode also, it seems like Yuritsa is taking more and more control, like subtly, you know, that she has the real power there, you know, and by the end, when she more or less, I don't want to say admits to being the reincarnation of his mother, but like says like he, she's essentially harnessed his, her spirit and then has him go down on her. Like he's going to go down on his mother or always wanted to. That's a... Great job, Nick Reffin. Well, because she literally says, he says, I miss the way she sounds, the way she smelled, and the way she, she tastes. tastes. Like, Ooh. Yeah, I you mean, wonder if that was the punishment. I think, you know, there was... Well, and and again, like, we talked about this with episode two, like, there's there's hints of his uncle sleeping with the the, the mother, too. You know, beyond we're saying, you know, the in, in that Mexican culture, the, you know, adoration of of your sister, of the sister in an almost like holy, you know, Virgin Mary kind of mentality, right. Of, yeah. of praying to her, um, and the way they kind of speak to her after she's passed. But this feels like, Oh, they had a very close relationship, but he, but it also is, it's offset with that. Again, like the best, one of the better scenes of the episode is him telling the story of how he was selling drugs and how he's like, she was a great mom. You know, that has a sense of a very genuine, like, we we connected, like, we enjoyed our time together. Like, and she was, she always protected me and took care of me. And it seems very real and not in a creepy reffing way. Yeah, it's strange, again, how he wants his cake and to eat it, too. Yeah. You know, because he has that great sort of human scene, but then he wants to go back to his only God forgives territory and do the whole Oedipal thing. Yes. But... I mean, Aguilera really acquits himself in this episode. I think he's he's quite terrific. The only other question I had, I did have one last note I wanted to ask, because this is a general thought that I have a lot of the time, especially since meth has like dominated a lot of the, let's say, pulpier storytelling that we've get, mm-hmm. been given recently, since, especially since Breaking Bad. Yeah. Has there ever been, a, like, have you ever had a friend who had a good time on meth. Like, I don't understand the appeal of meth. And we have an entire, like, like the whole reason Damien's hit goes wrong is because basically the guy's high on crystal the entire time. But it's strange. I don't know how meth has ascended to become a drug that people want to do because, like, I've never had a buddy that's like, yo, man, went out to the club last night, did some meth, was pretty good. Home by 11. I don't know anyone who's done it. Um, I think it's a class thing too. I mean, it is a cheaper, it is a, it's a much, sure. you know, and, and it's just like where I grew up, like it just wasn't, I mean, I grew up in Indiana where there's, it's one of the meth capitals of the world, but not in the circles I ran in. So yeah, I know yeah. you never, you never smoked any crystal, never your crystal, you know, never, never. It's the same with like crack. It's the same kind of idea or like, I'm just like, Nope, I'm good. So like <laughs> you know, like the guy who invented crack. Yeah. <laughs> Crack is another one that at least you get one. Like I've had, I've heard one positive story where like, 
Aaron. Well, I mean, Aaron Sorkin used to be like, when I smoked crack, that was when I was my real self. Like, I think that's a direct quote. And you were like, oh, okay. Like, nobody's ever, nobody's been the Aaron Sorkin of meth, is what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always, you just see the pictures of like, this is what happens to your body on meth and just like the sunken cheeks and the missing teeth and the Walter Brennan look. And nobody got laid that night. They no. all just hold up, pulled the curtains and thought the cops were after them. I always think of Salt and Sea, the, the uh, Val Kilmer movie, which is all about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just being on speed the entire night. 100%. You want to get to volume seven and yes. stop talking about meth? I would love to. Sweet. <laughs> Volume 7, The Magician for Too Old to Die Young. Martin, got a question. Nick Reffin, where does he rank in terms of like cinema's greatest DJs? Because the triple nine homicide uh, needle drop that scores JD's 18th birthday party is impeccable. I mean, he's one of the best modern Right, um, easily. I mean, because again, like Drive is mo- partly known just for its soundtrack. That yeah, like, he brought that synthwave Johnny Jewel thing really into like the public sphere, and like I think it helped really popularize it more than it already was. Um, I mean, again, like he's got a lot of Michael Mann skills. Like Michael Mann also loves to pick his own songs, you know, and. Yeah. And I mean, the whole the whole Heat soundtrack is just bangers of just awesome, weird avant-garde synth and Brian Eno, Moby stuff. You know, I didn't know that that didn't have an original score for the longest time. I thought that was just the score. And then it was like, oh, no, he just handpicked all the music. And you're like, Jesus. Reffin does a bit of both. Yeah. Because he's got Cliff Martinez really cranking up a score for this one. But yet in this, he he's also dropping like those ska and reggae tunes when Damien's there. But like the triple nine homicide one is just one of those like it perfectly syncs with what's happening on screen while like Martin morosely looks upon this 18th birthday party for his girlfriend. I think kind of letting the fact that he's been fucking an underage girl really sink in. They, when in the beginning of this episode, too, is a flashback of him meeting with um, Jenna Malone's character, right? Right. And and keep hitting at that point of, she almost, she's almost giving the Voight comp test from Blade Runner. It is. It's It's 100% that. (laughs) It's just like, you flip a turtle, what's a tortoise? Like, you know, kind of bullshit. When I love, I love, I'm like, oh, this is a total Blade Runner reference. But There's she's, a boy ripping wings off of a butterfly. What do you do? She's she's testing his humanity, right? right. Like she's testing. It's like, all right, if you're going to be part of our mission, are you human? And then when it gets to the, an underage girl comes on to you, what do you do? He's like, I, I run. And she's like, really? 
you know, and it's, it's hammering at, you know, he's trying to get involved with these people who are moral crusaders, you know, who are fighting for, you know, again, a higher form of justice. And he has a big Achilles fucking heel that it's like, that seems to be coming more and more into clarity. And I think that that scene is so the scene at the birthday party is perfect where you don't belong here, man. Like, like you said, this is just making it clear as day. It's like, now she's legal. Like her friend, that the really annoying Asian girl, you know, says, Oh, so now you can breathe a sigh of relief, right? And it's like, ew. Like everyone knows, you know, this is what's going on. Everyone thinks he's a creep, which he is. We forget it's like from that we all had even the coked out skeezy hooker that sells them out to the Mexicans and gets his partner killed, like calls him a creep directly. Like he it's not even these underage girls, like he kind of just creeps everybody out. Yeah, he's like he's a handsome guy, but we all had friends in high school, women who dated older guys, and we all thought those guys fucking sucked. We all we'd all be like, that guy's fucking. This guy named Nick. He would always date like the seniors of my high school, and we'd all be like, fucking Nick. It was you the, know, it was the mythical my boyfriends in college thing, to where I was like, I always like ever heard that, and I would, I never thought it was weird, but it was just like, oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah. He's in college and he's still dating a high school girl. Like I felt like you you went to college to find college girls. Yeah, it's like cool for you that you have an older boyfriend, but it's nasty for yeah. him. Like, odd. We'll go with odd. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And it was just very. But that's the scene is very much him. Like I mean, Refn is not always subtle with the stuff, but standing completely away from the group. Right. There's this dance going on. He's hanging back, even like during this this creepy Donald Trump speech. Of, oh, of him saying, I mean, word for word, if she weren't my daughter, you know, which is what Trump said about Ivanka, where it was like, I've always said, if she weren't my daughter, I'd be dating her. And look just, how hot she is. She is smoking. Like, literally licks his finger and touches her and goes, Tss. and you're like, dude. And that takes credit for making her. That's like the, until you pointed out off mic that it's supposed to be Trump and uh, his oldest daughter, Ivana? Ivanka. Ivanka. I, I like mix up whatever mail order Russian bride name they have. Yeah. But like, I totally forgot about the whole like Trump being like, I would fuck my daughter. I mean, there's even the, the run the jewels lyric about it, but it's, it totally is that like he, he just says, you know, I always said she weren't my daughter. She weren't my daughter. You're like, don't say that. There are strangers present, sir. Well, it's very, um, and then he also has the horrible line of like, you're 18, which means I'm three years away from dating one of your friends. And he's like, I'm looking at you. And he's like, I'm joking. I'm joking. He's like, oh, and of course, again, sniffing because he has no fucking septum left. This is not going to mean anything to like anyone who's listening, but he does the voice I thought of when you say to me <laughs> behind the scenes and try to be a creep. You're like, Martin wants some treats. No, save some treats for Martin. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. He's doing that voice and talking about banging her friends. And you're like, God bless Billy Baldwin because he really leans into it. Well, and then we have this whole beginning part of the of the episode. Um, you know, after he goes to help to work with Damien, he comes back. And you have this, you know, probably 10, 15 minutes of him alone with, um, with the dad, with Billy Baldwin. 
and it while goes, he's watching a movie that I think he produced that looks like a remake of Martin's life. Like if you watch the movie that he's sitting in that screening room when he and Martin have that moment alone together, like it's the opening scene. It's the, the opening the scene of the show, but redone almost like in a more heightened way, almost like a, a like standard cop show version of it. Well, because he they talked. It's a, it's a it's a mirror of another scene when he was talking to him the first time he did the growling thing with Tiger um, in like episode three I think where he says hey or maybe in episode one where he's like um, we could work together you know like I could make you tell me stories and I could like make those stories yeah so this seems like it's it's bringing that back right it's like I am and he almost he shows him the scene too almost like I have something on you I know who you really are like it almost, and that's what he says now that I own you um, and then Martin shoots him in the fucking head yeah um, and no he doesn't shoot him oh he, that's right he fucking pistol whips him takes his belt off puts it around his neck and almost like sexually strangles him until he snaps his neck. Yeah. It's his, the, the moment I kept thinking to compare it to, it's his Ryan Gosling with the hammer and drive moment where he gets to fetishistically like attack another man. And it's really uncomfortable, but awesomely photographed. Well, cause it's, just, it keeps, keeps going on about again. I, you know, I was watching you two have sex on the couch and then he's jerking off to the idea with Martin sitting right behind him and having a very loud Billy Baldwin orgasm. I mean, just a, an earth shatterer. Yeah, he, <laughs> he sounds like a street urchin in like a 42nd Street theater. Or like Jack Nicholson in The Departed when he appears in the porn theater with the dildo. That's the other thing I kept thinking of. He's like, ah! And you're like, Billy Baldwin, no! I've never wanted to see your vinegar strokes. <laughs> But it's, you know, um, it's an interesting episode. I like, I like this better than episode six, but where you have Martin has joined in with Vigo and with Jenna Malone's character. I'm sorry, I forget her name. In the, on this, this holy crusade. Diana. Diana, the holy crusade, right? But this scene is his violence escaping not when it should. Right, that it's like because he's he's learning to in a very Dexter kind of way channel his rage to kill the right people, and now it's like you fucked up, dude. Well, and that's where I was going with the Black Mirror comparison between him and Jesus, where Jesus embraces it and it's like, okay, fine, I'm gonna be what I really am. Yeah, where Martin's fighting it or even trying to, like you said, channel it into something else. I think this is the most overt political commentary from. Brubaker and Refn to where it's almost like commenting on the idea since they, he does comment often that they shot this during the 2016 election and how like as an outsider from Europe, he felt like a stranger in a strange land and how he was, he it was like America imploding around him while yeah. he made this epic project for Amazon that nobody could even like fathom. But like you wonder if that's bleeding into that stuff very uh, obviously because it's like you can't be a crusader if you're not like morally unshaded, let's say Yep. where you have to be pure. You have to be virtuous. And it's like, 
all these people around us are not like that's what's leading to the downfall of society. People taking up causes when they themselves probably shouldn't be the ones fighting for them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's the, the era of cancel culture, you know, quote unquote cancel culture where it's these, these people will speak out and then, Hey, remember this one time and they get killed with a tweet. You Damn, know, I knew you were going to have your Ben Shapiro moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, hate, I, hate, I hate him so much. Um, <laughs> You no, know, but that, that, the 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 idea of cancel culture, right? That, sure. That you know, everyone's got a, a skeleton, you know. And but but Martin specifically is like, dude, like you have baggage, man. Like you don't get to be the hero. Like you're trying to make yourself into this hero by doing good. Well, and I think my idea, even beyond the political crusader, is just the crusader in general, stretching all the way back to Vigo's monologue, which is almost I realized when revisiting Valhalla Rising is almost like an extension of the opening like title crawl of Valhalla where it says like first there was man in nature and then men with crosses came like Vigo pretty much word for word says that it's the idea that like you can't be a crusader you can't bring morality and justice to other people if you yourself are like just morally corrupt. And that's what Martin is. Like he's a murderer. He's a like, he's a pedophile. Even, even if he's killing pedophiles, you're still committing murder. Like, like it's just, it's incredible. Uh, in how Reffin and Brubaker really embrace that commentary, but like they don't forefront it. It's just part of the narrative. Well, and it's also like, I mean, it kind of runs throughout the entire show is no one's clean. Right. Like no one. It is know. the classic film noir thing of like nobody's gonna get off like free here. Yeah, there's no one with with, with clean hands. Um and speaking of hands, um Oh, when Damien gets his cut off, that's ugh. There's a I think we were talking off mic, but this is it feels like a very Brewbreaker scene to me. It's very comic booky, and Brewbreaker has a lot of like shocking violence in his stuff too, um, of just the the dehumanization of the, like the body, you know, like taking the hands and the, his naked body pushed in the corner of this pool, just beaten to shit. Um, kind of reminds me of history of violence, the comic too, that I, cause they're saying basically what they did in history of violence, which is what the cartel does do. I've heard is like, they take you apart piece by piece. They don't kill you. Well, it's like the Sicario stuff. Very too. Sicario. Yeah. It's like, we're going to keep you alive and we're going to cut you and oh. keep your ears on so you can hear what you're missing. You know? What a line. It's just like, it's fucked up. And really disturbing. I mean... It's the thing that really bums me out that Brubaker and Reffin kind of had a mild falling out over this production because the next thing they were going to do is Maniac Cop together. Oh that's That originally is going to be just a, a re-envisioning of it as a feature-length film, but now it's supposedly for years now su supposed to be a HBO series with John Hyams directing our boy, like, a bunch of it along with Reffin because like I heard what Brubaker's original story concept was going to be. Larry Cohen actually told me because he, he read the script for it and he was like, it was going to essentially be like, remember the Neil Jordan movie, Mona Lisa? Oh yeah where Bob Hoskins is driving like prostitutes around and stuff. It was going to be about that type of character, like a Bob Hoskins type driving prostitutes around and how the maniac cop strikes and they intersect with them. And it like 
takes them down like this kind of rabbit hole into the underworld beyond even what they knew. And now Refn's expanding that into like a full season of, or is supposed to be, this has been in development for forever. Now I even asked John Hyams about it and he said he was still working on it a couple years ago when he had that baseball movie at South by. Oh, right. What is it? Uh, win it all. No, win it all is the Swanberg gambling one. Forget. Yeah. I'm blanking on the name, but pretty good movie. Um, but yeah, I asked him about it too and he was still supposedly working on it at the time. But man, I would kill to see the the Nick Reffin, Ed Brubaker, Maniac Cop movie. It seems, again, very similar to this, though, of colliding worlds, colliding right. narrative threads. Um, and again, this is the part of that, this is the part of that se- the season where, or the show, where our, our disparate threads, and come in, again, not just two, but like multiple threads are hitting each other. Again, Janie meeting Yuritsa in a separate scene, the, the death of Damien, um, all these things are kind of coming to a head. And now at the end of the, the climax of this episode, Damien saying, if you kill me and you know, don't torture me, I'll tell you who actually killed your mother, Jesus. And it's Martin, Martin Jones. In such an amazing cliffhanger, like that ending shot is one of my favorite. Like it's, Again, getting back to more traditional TV. Yes. To where it literally leaves you on a cliffhanger. Like, oh shit, they know it's Martin. What happens next? It feels, it could be a plot point in Breaking Bad. Like a more mm-hmm. traditional, yep. um, accessible piece of television. But instead, it's used in this 14-hour art film. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like Volume 7. I'd agree with you that it's better than 6. But my defense... Of six and episode two, all the Jesus stuff, which I really, really like, is I believe it's supposed to be Mm -hmm. a different rhythm. I think that he's telling his story with almost like a different, it's still the same voice, it's just a different pitch, if that makes sense. And they're supposed to meet where it feels, because the other thing that's amazing about Jesus's like chapters that are like primarily focused on him is how much brighter and in the sunlight and he's out in the world they are than like Martin existing in the darkness and the shadiness in the underworld is that it's, it's how almost like the two com- intersect. And then I had this like composer friend growing up, this kid named Nick, who was like my brother's age, a couple years younger than me went on to become like a, a music producer, but he did like electronic music and stuff. But he taught me when I was younger about the idea of like, uh, discordant songs and how you would play one harmony, but then play something completely jagged and, and it feels like it's unfit for the song, like over it, but it like actually combines to create its own melody. That's what I feel like he's doing here. Like the song is finally finding its real kind of rhythm and, and togetherness and unity. It just took him a while to get there. And, it is a risk because like, if you're not vibing with that part of the song, like you might be lost entirely. Like or you just, were, or turn it off. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like you were, yeah. you're just, you're lost. You're like, all right, what's, what else is on? You know? Yep. It's, 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 it's a big risk. You know, if you said 14 hours of TV, I like how it gets longer every time we say, we're like, this thing's like 10 hours long. Well, it's like 12. <laughs> I think I, I thought about that today while I was watching this episode because we were doing, it was uh, episode six is another 90 minute one. So you're like, God damn. But like, 
I thought, I think at one point I even said this is like 18 hours. It's like 12 and a half. Yeah. Like for real. <laughs> but it is, it's funny. We've, we've created this like myth around this show of like, it was Nick Reffin's 48 hour movie <laughs> marathon that like he plays the same scene eight times. It's crazy, yo. It's uh, Andy Warhol's Empire, <laughs> you know? Empire <laughs> State just like. This is like Nick Reffin's Chelsea Girls, but if you did cocaine while on stage. <laughs> You want to do Valhalla Rising? Yes, sir. All right. about 2009's Valhalla Rising. So, like Bronson, I have to admit, I didn't, I still, this one's not for me. I think the crime stuff from Nick Reffin is like 100% my lane and his outside, although I really like Neon Demon a lot, but that's kind of still takes place. It's at least adjacent. It's like the supernatural. Yeah adjacent version of like drive or it definitely exists down the block from oldie God forgives. But this one, I don't know. I think what's really missing from it is the humor. Like it's such a not long, but like slow driving portentous kind of dirge. Well, it's, it's shorter than some episodes of this show. And it feels longer. Yeah, Like it's it, like 88 minutes before credits. Yeah. And it's, you know, it starts out, and I think the first, like, 15 minutes are fucking great, where it's, like, him is being brought to fight, and it's just these beautiful, like, misty landscapes, and it's really Scot- epic. All shot in Scotland. Yeah, and it's just the Highlands, right? And it's just, it's just like, you can feel, like, the mud, and, the, and like, it, it's very tactile, right? And, and he's, because Mads Mikkelsen plays one eye a possible Viking who's been kidnapped by pagans at that point. So they're all, I believe of the same, they're all, they're all Vikings of the same know, belief, of the same belief system. And they say, they don't know where he came from. Um, like we brought him up from hell is what the kid says. He's like, cause one, I does not speak. It's a complete silent role. Right. Um, and Mads is one of the few actors who can pull that off. Cause he's, amazing um, it's not just a silent role it's a silent role missing one of his main tools as an actor his eyes like he only he has a giant scar and like makeup across his face so like he can only convey with half of it or three quarters of his face let's say but he can convey more with one eye than most, most actors. actors can do with pages of monologue yeah seriously he's and and again, Reffin knows what he's got with his lead, and he's like, I can totally lean on Mads to like bring that energy. Um, I agree. So when I first saw this, it was right after Bronson, and I 
it was like one of the first times you could rent when Amazon was doing like while in theater shit. And I had my friends, John and Steve over, they were already fans of Bronson. They were also into Viking shit like me. And we watched it and we're all like, Oh, it was cool. You know, and this is pre drive. So we didn't know where he was going. Um, it's, I was still interested in what he had to like. I was pumped for drive. I'm like, Oh, I want to see more films by this guy. So I still liked the tone and feel of the movie. Um, but like, it really is the ultimate, like, pretentious, like, film school student made a movie about war and shit. Like, the, the long speeches, like, when they're on the boat for, like, 15 minutes, it feels like eight hours. And they're talking about, like, I will bring the cross. It's like, all right, dude, because it, I get it. Like, religion is, it, religion brings violence. It just feels about that fucking thin. Yeah, it's real sophomore dorm room after you've had like three joints philosophizing. Yeah, you, like you've been a real, you've been a Christian your whole life and like your parents surrounded you by it. And now you're in school and you're like, wait, what if Christianity is like the reason for all wars? You know, it has like that depth right. to it. It's one of those movies that makes you wonder if Nick Reffin's a dumbass. This one, if this is the only film I saw by a filmmaker, I'd say this guy's a fucking dummy. He has an eye and he has talent and like this yeah. guy at the center of it's pretty fucking cool and the violence is great. But yeah, you're like, I had to sit through 88 minutes to essentially be told war and religion, possibly not the best things in life. I don't know. Yeah, I remember when it came out, like they would do the like, they had the trailer would have already like reviews in it, like from festival circuit, like a rumination on war and religion. I was like, all right. All right. Well, yes, it is. But Sit down, a, Poindexter. But a dumb one. Um, <laughs> but like we were talking earlier off mic, but I think one of the things he is doing is pulling from Norse mythology. And my interpretation, and this may be completely unfounded, is that one eye is, if not Odin, a representation of Odin who had one eye. The, the theme of this is about one religion and a, a people being pushed out by Christianity and so him finally dying seems like the end of that era, the death of the gods. And for him to die in the new world in, in, the, in the Americas makes sense, too. Like that was like the final, you know, nail in the coffin. Well, because the other thing is that he like starts a slave, revolts escapes falls in with people who now fear him but who are from a different religion from him he actually yeah finds they're christians pagans christian exactly like he it's one man traversing different religions until he lands on a shore like not his own as a essentially killed by its natives. It's like the, the conqueror, the one who thinks that they're going to bring the cross on their back and like culture to the people, you know, they're eventually probably also going to be destroyed by those same cultures. They're trying to take over. Now, that being said, you can trace an evolution of this line of thinking from Valhalla rising to too old to die young because again of Vigo's speech and the idea that as we became more civilized, we became more psychotic. Is this very deep? No, but it is the old dorm room rumination of like, you know what, man, Christianity is just a bunch of rules that we set for ourselves and adhering to these rules. We've gone crazy and we take it too far but it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. At least it's done like using doom metal and extreme violence here. Yeah, and again, it's it's cool looking, and like he gets some just insanely like epic shots. I mean, yeah. like he 
Real Conan the Barbarian stuff. Very Conan. I mean, and again, you were speaking of like, he was a slave and then he was free and then he was a soldier. It's like very much the episodic quality of a romance. Right. You know, like a, like a, like a, a Conan story, like, or gladiator or the Odyssey. Yeah. The just classic the, Greek mythology stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's, he's again, like you said, he's got an eye and like, you know, very much you were saying earlier, like this kind of tracks with the more drone core, you know, cause Bronson is so just batshit crazy. It's his first pure work of drone core that he'd essentially keep going to refine because like the pusher movies kind of have their own, I don't want to say verite because they're a little fantastical at times, but they have their own vibe and their own energy. Mm -hmm. He's not quite moving towards like this style yet. Bronson kind of announces him as refining it. And then Valhalla rising is, is sort of like the bridge between Bronson and Drive yeah. to where Brian Drive is kind of like, okay, I figured it out. This is what I'm going to be from now on. I was just playing with a bunch of stuff until I found that exact right kind of alchemy. And then he moves away from it immediately. Yeah, then he, aba- well, here's the thing. Not though. completely. He but... abandons it. He abandons the, the, the storytelling, but he keeps the style. And, and he abandons the populist yeah, the the more like he makes human. art films again. Yeah, he because yeah. that's the thing is like Drive was an unlikely hit. Like oh, yeah. nobody thought the guy who made the fucking like ninety minute Viking mystic- mysticism like mega violence movie was gonna shit out the Driver two point You know, like yeah. that that wasn't a thing. It was just he kind of came out of nowhere with that movie and then was like, oh shit, you people like this? I don't like that. I'm going back to art school and just move further and further away again because of his sort of impish need to provoke. Like his he little has that edge yeah. thing. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, if he's again, I adhere to the, the idea with Refin is that even when I don't like his stuff, I really admire the aesthetics. Like I, it's hard to deny that he's a master filmmaker. I agree. No, there's, there's shots in this. There's some of my favorite stuff he's ever done. There's a couple, there's one of like a wide of them when he's being sold to the other chieftain and they're marching up that, that, um, that hill with just mist on all sides. And it's just like fucking like Peter Jackson, eat your heart out. I mean like that level of, he just has, and it it feels so atmospheric and thick, you know? Well, I don't love the boat sequence in the movie um i still think it looks great oh, yeah. because it's almost like he took you know a stage with a pool on it yes just put a fog machine around it put these guys in a boat and then let them act out this play for like 15 minutes but it it doesn't work as like any kind of narrative or engaging drama but as an aesthetic choice it looks fucking awesome it's it's kind of interesting to see where he walked like Eggers could run with Northman, you know. Like there's just so much like they're playing in similar. I think it's slightly different in in terms of styling though. I think oh, yeah. Eggers was really chasing like Russian cinema, although they both share a lot of Herzog. That's the one thing that that they and both Milius. are kind of doing. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely <laughs> Milius. But Herzog was the other one with Valhalla Rising that I was thinking about. And the the idea the of, like, of God all the way. The wrath of God, 
the notion of man's relationship to his environment, nature, how like the the destruction for the destructive forces of like men lead to nothing but like more violence and destruction. Like, yeah, you're doing a gear, but like again, it looks pretty good. Yeah, I was thinking of gear the whole time, and I also this also fits Caraldo's too the idea of trying to force civilization upon a wild land right. and it pushing back. You know, I think it's very is very right on as well. I think Herzog just like what Herzog has that Refn doesn't is even when he's pretentious, like Herzog is thinking about a lot of things. I don't think of him as a sophomore philosopher. I think of him as like a guy who has a lot on his mind. It doesn't always work, but there's depth there. Well, and Herzog's movies feel as Herculean as they were to make. Yes. You can see on the screen. Like he, these feel like passion projects that could possibly kill a person if they ever try to take them on. And the end result is sort of awe inspiring, especially like Fitzcarraldo. (laughs) Like the end result is so awe inspiring that you're, you're moved by the idea that this guy was so possessed that he had to make this fucking movie come hell or high water about a guy who's so obsessed. So it's exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's all like what, uh, what Les Blanc's burden of dreams is about. Yes. But oh, it's so fucking good. Yeah. It's amazing. But Nick Reffin feels like a guy who saw Fitz Corraldo and apocalypse now and was like, I can do that. And to his credit, again, a lot of it does work. It just as a whole has always fallen kind of flat for me to where like I'm impressed by stuff in it, but I'm like, I don't care. Like I won't watch this again. Yeah. It doesn't have, it, it just, there's just not a lot of to chew on. Yeah. You know, it is like, it's one of his more again, like most visually stimulating, but there's even less than in other stuff where it's just like, all right, I nothing almost to hold wish- on to that it leaned into the mystical stuff a little more in the fantastical stuff. Yeah. Because like, you know, one eye has these visions and dreams of, that predict his own future. Like it would have been cool to almost do more of like a, a weird Italian or Euro horror take on it to where it, it gets a little wilder. Like I'm not exactly asking for like, you know, Nick Reffin to do Fulci's conquest or anything, but it would be cool to see him try. Or yeah, just a strict adventure. Like, yeah, like some pablum. Yeah, like either lead completely into the mysticism or like just make it like a bare bones adventure. Boom, 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 boom. Because like the violent scenes are fucking awesome. Like the the the, the fights in this are brutal. Yeah. <laughs> like really People brutal. People get shot with arrows. They pummel each other to death. Mads Mikkelsen bites a guy's like neck out in the first Spits five minutes. It out, yeah. Ooh. It's it's some gnarly stuff, but it also is like just caked in mud and blood and filth. Like he wants you to feel like you're down in the Scottish Highland swamps with these dudes. Oh yeah. But I think that about wraps it up for Valhalla Rising. Yeah, I think enough said. Next week we actually come to the end of this grand experiment that I've honestly quite enjoyed. Like yeah. this has been a lot of fun. But next week we're gonna do a movie that you can't fucking stand. Called The Neon Demon and the final three episodes of Too Old to Die Young. So you'll have to stay tuned for part four of our mini series. Catch you then. See you next time.